This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tom, what do we got? Well, today we're going to look at something that's probably not really well known, and it's not typically taught in history classes, but it's definitely an event that did have some significant impact on history um, and on the Second World War. And it's kind of impossible to gauge how much history it had, but it's coming into the um, forefront of the more. I know you said, yeah. yeah, pop culture. I know you said you knew about it. I've definitely heard about it before, but uh, Netflix is coming out with a movie about it. So it's a real thing. And um, we're going to be looking on Operation Mincemeat and how the Allied forces basically tricked Adolf Hitler and the Nazis in when it came to the um, invasion of uh, Sicily. Invasion yep. of Italy, basically, yep. in World War II. Yeah, so uh, we did mention the fact that this is obviously becoming a Netflix show. I think the movie came out in Britain already. Like, it was a movie. In, it? It's just a British intelligence movie. Yeah. So it came out in Britain, and then it's going to be released. Uh, it's I think, just going to release on I, Netflix. I think, I think it is released. Yeah, it is yeah. released on Netflix now in the United States. And uh, it's just one of those things that's going to probably um, get talked about a little bit more, I'm sure. Yeah. Unless it's not good. Nah. Yeah. Well, it has some major actors in it. It does have some major actors in it. And there was a movie about it. There's been books about it, 50s, right? The Man, 50s, who never, yeah. the Man Who Never Was. And there was movies about it, right? In 1956, The Man Who Never Was. So there's definitely uh, information out there. It's not like it's like a hidden hidden uh, yeah. topic. The book that I read about this was Ben McIntyre's um, Operation Mincemeat, which came out probably about five, six years ago. It's a really good book for those of you guys that are interested in actually pursuing this topic a little bit more and learning more about it. Or you could do what we're probably going to be doing tonight, which is uh, watching this, you know, if our wives let us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. All right. So this is taking place in 1943, technically of the coast of Spain. But let's back up a little bit and just kind of uh, let's give an overview, Tom, of kind of what happened. And then we'll get into the intricacies. World War II is on, right? So we know that's mm-hmm. going on. And um, the Allies, Europe is basically locked down by Hitler and the Germans, right? Like the Allies were looking for a way to get into Europe. They knew that if they don't get into actually mainland Europe, they're not going to be able to win this war. They're going to lose it. They had to somehow get in there. And this famous quote right by Winston Churchill that Italy is a soft underbelly of Europe, right? And they knew the only way to get there was coming up through Sicily. Everybody knew it, but everybody knew it. The Germans also knew that too. So they had to come up with a way on how to convince the Germans that that's not what they were going to do. So it was one of those, it's espionage. Well, it's more than espionage. It's basically that um, deterrence, right? that difference yeah. in the war. It's going to be, it's, so you have to change the course of the war. And it's kind of like an old, it's old type of story. Just going back, it's like the Trojan horse, you know, just some way to misdirect the enemy in any way yeah. possible. And um, to dupe them and without them knowing that they're being duped, that they're being fooled. And I tell all this stuff happened. I know we talked about, we talked about D-Day. They, they do a lot of the same stuff, not to this extent, but do a lot of the same stuff um, also here. Um, in 1939, they were planning all these different ways, right? Yeah, there was 54 to, possible ideas, the Trout Memo. Possible ideas is somehow, the Trout Memo, yeah, to somehow come up with ways to um, do this. And the Trout Memo, I'm sure you used to love this. This is like your guy, but he was actually yeah. um, written by novelist Ian Fleming, the guy who created James Bond. Yep. So the Trout Memo so. is kind of real quick. This is, like you said, 1939. And the British intelligence puts together this memo of 54 possible ideas on how they could fool the enemy. And this particular one is is, is actually part of 54. It's number 28, to be specific. And as you mentioned, I mean, this is the creator of James Bond. At the time, Ian Fleming um, was a, an assistant to the director of naval intelligence, uh, Admiral John Godfrey. 
Godfrey eventually becomes the model for M in the James Bond stories. But one of the things that Fleming did is his job was with Godfrey was, you know, create these ideas. What can we come up with? And and again, all these are this idea of a Trojan horse. Like, how can we somehow misdirect? How can we trick the enemy? This originates in 1939. It's kind of put on a back burner because it's not really needed until 1943, when now, as you mentioned, it is so obvious where the Allies are going to attack. And primarily because of the fact that once the United States gets involved in December of 1941, we don't really do much. Obviously, it's already December. So we don't really do much when it comes to you know helping Stalin and the British yeah. fight against other than um, giving them supplies i guess yeah, yeah. we have to oh yeah we, well, we are giving them supplies right. but we're not lots of fighting and there's some there, there's some stuff in north africa right so and that's what i was getting at so but... we go to north africa so that's kind of more or less where where american base of operation is you know we're in north africa that's where Patton kind of gets gets his feet wet a little bit and it really almost becomes obvious that the you know the obvious launching point from africa would be to go and invade europe through italy and they said a choice was so obvious that Churchill even said that everybody but a bloody fool would know that it's Sicily. Like everyone would know we're going to attack through Sicily and Italy. And as you mentioned, Tom, the Germans also know it. So now they go back to this idea that they came up with in 1939. They're like, all right, well, how can we somehow trick them to turn away from the obvious? And, And the reason I think this is successful is because Adolf Hitler is slightly paranoid about the Balkans and Greece, Yeah. right? Yeah, because so, that's where um, they, the Germans have a ton of warm, warm raw materials there, right? Yep. They have like the copper, chrome, oil, stuff like that. And they knew that he was paranoid about this. So that's why they wanted to do this. They did talk about the invasion of France, right? But mm-hmm. they said that we have to put that off for at least a year. We're not ready for that. So they needed yep. like some kind of like a stage before they could even attempt to, to do this. So Operation Barclay, which is basically where Operation Mincemeat is, right? It's like a small yep. operation in that other operation. It's yep. this deception operation to play upon these concerns and mislead the Germans into thinking that the Balkans are actually this objective to divert a lot of the resources and armor from the Sicily campaign, which again, everyone knows it's going to go there. But the idea is let's convince Hitler that it's not going to go there. Yep. That, that, that would be too obvious, which they also do this summer stuff when they invade um, um, Normandy, when they make the uh, Germans think that they're invading at Ca- uh, Calais. So it's just yep. very similar. Fool me once, yeah. fool me twice. I mean, come on, right? Yeah. So what they do is, as you mentioned, Adolf Hitler knows that they get so many raw materials from the Balkans. They kind of move all the American forces. And similar to what they do in D-Day, they actually do wind up making like dummy tanks and other things. And they yeah, have this fake whole, army, like, the 12th Army. Yep, they create a 12th Army and they start doing these maneuvers that are conducted in Syria and inflate all these dummy tanks and numbers, armored vehicles. So that way observers think that if they are creating this army in Syria, that means the launching point is definitely going to be Greece. Uh, Meanwhile, what they're doing is they're being very loud. The Allies are being very loud through radio communications and talking about this idea of like, yes, we're going through Syria. Yes, we're going to go and attack Greece and the Balkans. And keep in mind that obviously we're doing all this in code, knowing that the Germans have already cracked our code. While this is happening, you know, this 12th army, this fake 12th army is getting ready to jump. Meanwhile, all the real planning is done closer to Sicily. They wind up using landlines as opposed to radio communications for like six months prior to this. So, so that way it would be more difficult for the Germans to pick up because you can't pick up any wavelengths, right? Unless you tap into yeah. the wires. So that's kind of how they get away with this. You know, yeah, the- I always thought it was weird too, like how they can hide an army like this. You know what I mean? Like it's not no, like nowadays you have like drones please. and spy satellites yeah. you're going to be able to tell right away. They're just like, all right, we'll, we'll do landlines and we'll just be able to mass this army 
that's going to, you know, go into Sicily for six months. <laughs> nuts. It's nuts. It really is. So they go back to this original plan, right? And the, and the plan is number 28, which is dead body. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Like they need a dead body. And the basic premise, and we're going to get into the specifics here, but the basic premise is like, we're going to dump a dead body in a water near the Spanish coast where we know that the Spanish, although they are technically... Um, neutral. It's kind of like Switzerland is technically neutral, but if you really study this, I mean, Switzerland and, yeah. and Spain were not really neutral. So we're thinking like, we'll dump this body near the Spanish coast and we'll put all kinds of misinformation on this body, hoping that the Spanish are going to, before they re the report this body found, this British body, they're going to supposedly first contact the Germans. That's the hope here. And then we could somehow make this person seem like a really important person with a lot of really important information, but not too obvious. We'll get into how they did this. Um, but that's basically the premise here. So is now they need to figure out like, all right, like how do we go do this? Whose body, right? Yeah. So, and, they, so they're going through yeah. all this stuff, right? And um, I don't want to uh, jump on what you're going to say no, there, go, Peter, go. but basically no, 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 the no. one thing that they're worried about is that they have to find someone who could look like an agent and that, that they'll get to, but also that uh, how the person died. What they're worried about, they can't just say, like they talk about, they can't just grab someone from a car crash because they died from shock, not drowning, and the lungs wouldn't be filled with water. But then someone else adds, listen, that might not be a problem because where we're dumping the body piece, the Spanish are Roman Catholics. And then at that time, they don't did um, post-mortem yeah. autopsies. Unless it was for the cause of death, unless it was great importance, they just didn't do that. So they probably wouldn't even tell that the lungs weren't filled with water. Plus, eventually, at some point, the lungs fill anyway with different liquid, and that they might not be able to tell the difference between if it's just a decomposing liquid or if it was seawater. Probably wouldn't be noticed. It probably wouldn't yep. be because they found a body in the water. They're not going to like scrutinize it that much. Yeah. So that's something that they're looking at. So now it's just basically they need to find some sort of body. And these individuals who are running, the, which is uh, MI6, Frank Foley is one of the people who are you know, involved in this plan. Runs he's it, one yep. of the main actor. He's one of the main characters in the movie too. They basically um, talk to this mortician. Yep. And they, t and they tell him, listen, you know, if there's a uh, body that comes across that, you know, because they know this is kind of like this. Well, it's not kind of, it is illegal, right? But yeah, a body yeah. of something that comes across that you don't think anyone's going to claim doesn't have to. I was going to say, we need a homeless like person. We need someone that has no family person, yeah. whatsoever. They call, yeah. they call them a tramp, right? They're looking for a yeah. tramp, which is like a traveler. And they want if something that comes along. Let us know. Eventually, a uh, suitable body does come in January of 1943. Glendar. 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 Yeah, Michael. But remember. his name doesn't actually come out. That doesn't come out until 1996. Yeah, we do they hide that. Like, they hide that for a while. So that, that's actually hidden until 1996. His actual name. They, they always knew who it was. They, yeah. The government, I say the government, the British government, just kind of said, oh, no, we had permission, stuff like that. No, no, they didn't. That didn't come out until 1996. And yeah. then they had to go change the tombstone, which we'll talk about. They did. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Yeah. But um, he yeah. ate rat poison. Who does that? Um, I mean, I mean, um, I mean, he did. Blinder uh, Michael know, he, did. But, but yeah, but it was a small amount of it in his system. And he said it probably wouldn't be identified, um, yeah. especially for, you know, they find a body floating in the sea for several days. You're not going to check it for rat poison. So Man. again, it, it kind of fit the feeling. So they so. get this body, right? And they, they put it in a mortuary refrigerator and they're keeping it. That's another thing that was tricky because kind of morbid. They're trying to keep it at exactly 39 degrees yeah. Fahrenheit because any colder, right, would freeze, would start freezing toes and, and fingers and other things. Any warmer would start to decompose. So they're like, you know, they have to continuously try to keep this body at, you know, at this perfect, perfect temperature. temperature while they're creating a, a basically an identity. I mean, they, and we'll yeah. get to this, like they create an identity for this person. A lot of stuff. Yeah. And you only have um, three months to do it. After yes. three months, the body's going to be decomposed, even with the freezing, too much for it to be yep. useful. 
So they have to do it faster. And it even said it doesn't look like a uh, fit field officer because he looked kind of malnourished. But then um, Purchase says, like, does it have to look like a field officer, only a staff officer? And that's when they kind of realize, okay. So yeah, yeah it's just like someone who's carrying the memo, not necessarily someone who is in the know. And mincemeat, actually, just it's kind of random. It's a code name. It was they had a list of central intelligence had a list of different code names that were available as possibilities for different actions or, or whatever they were doing um, missions, I should say. So they just kind of picked out mincemeat from it. And they're like, all right, let's do this. So February fourth, nineteen forty three, is when they really kind of put this plan um, into motion, right? It passes the yeah. committee. Uh, chain of command is okay with it, including the final okay comes from uh, Churchill and then Eisenhower is the final person to say, all right, let's do this. Because ultimately, what they're trying to do is they're trying to help him alleviate the, the opposition he's going to get from the Germans yeah. in Sicily and Italy. And Germans do fall for it, right? I mean, obviously, right? We'll get to it. But the Germans well, we'll do wind to- up moving their forces over towards Greece and the Balkans. Yeah, I mean, it, this is a gamble, obviously, yeah. but it's a gamble worth taking because if even one less tank shows up, right, a few less divisions show up, that then it's worth it. Yep. And that's what that's what they're banking on, because any the less Germans there to fight us, the more of our guys will survive, the more of our guys will get ashore. So they're like, let, let's let, let's just try it. Why not? Like, if, yep. if they don't fall for it, if it doesn't, you know, they're also hoping that the body is found by the Spanish, that the, that the Spanish take it and give it to the Nazis and stuff. So that's it's a another lot of gamble, like, right? Yeah, there's a, whole, there's a whole chain of command that has to that has to go through for this to happen, that they're, they're put that's out of their control. But let's yeah. get back to what they're doing. So they're, they're, they're field pants operation. Um, they're putting it in place. And they knew they had to place documents on the corpse. He has a yeah. whole new name now. What's the what's the new name? It's no longer Glendower Michael. Captain Acting mm-hmm. Major William Martin. Yes. And they realize they can't just put this information on him and throw him in the water. Like, that's just not going to work. So they have to give him his whole backstory and all this um, information. And they start doing that. Like, they put in... Um, that he was a real person, they had to prove he was a real person. They provide details that he carried um, circles in his wallets, wallet litter, what they call a wallet litter. This included a photograph of an invented fiance named Pam that was actually um, MI uh, clerk, Jean Leslie. I think she's one of the other main, main people. Yeah, yeah, that's no, a, a picture of her. Yeah. yeah, she actually gives this like picture of her. It's her in like a bathing suit and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, love letters were put in there and they were written by different people. They put receipts from a, um engagement a ring. And apply. Uh, yeah, t- t- tickets and stuff like that. Um, letters from the guy's father. All these things in here that would make it sense. And they even um, used, they had they did test on like the ink to see which ink would last the longest in the water and make sure it was written that. Um, you know, they put in a book of stamps, say Silver, uh, St. Christopher's Medal, cigarettes, matches, a pencil stub. The actually thing just like, you know, sharpening out a pencil, threw it in there. Yeah. You know? The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. All these different things to just provide, like this is a real person, the stuff they would have on them, all right? And that he was in our, that he was in London from April 18th to the 24th. You know what's crazy though? Did you catch that one? The idea that like this guy was obviously a homeless dude and that the body itself they found and they did not have a picture of him, but they needed a photograph for an actual military ID and naval ID. And they they tried doing it first with the corpse. Like it's not working. It looks like a corpse. Yeah, this looks like a corpse. Yeah. 
So now that they could do that, yeah, so they basically got yeah, They found someone that kind of looked like them. They did. They, that's, that's what they did. They found some dude. They made a picture a little more blurry, and they're like, this guy yeah. looks kind of like him, kind of like what this Captain guy was Ronnie like. Reed. Ronnie Reed. Yeah. And he agreed to be photographed with a card with a Royal Marine uniform on, and they just basically took the picture and, like, you know, ruffled it up and made it look, like, worn and put on it that it was a reprint of the original. So, again, if the Germans would just be like, whatever. And then – they even had to get like special underwear because apparently underwear was like so hard to find. The war rationed. rationed. Yeah. yeah. So they had to find that, out. Right? <laughs> well, man, that's, how, like, what, that's how detailed they went into this. You know, because yeah. they found this guy was wearing brand new underwear. But like, no, no one's going to have brand new underwear. How does that get brand new underwear? So they had to make sure the underwear was like worn and wool and good quality. So the idea of like, you have all this, you're creating a deception that's going to move thousands of armies and, and change the fate of a war. And like, it comes down to, uh, we can't buy no, underwear because yeah, there's no a, a pair of underwear. Yeah. <laughs> like that's crazy to me. So basically what happens here is inside the, the most important part, the most important document. Yes, the most important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Right. So it was inside an envelope. Sealed. This is the like, sealed those, envelope. Those, right? those wax seals. Yeah. And it was actually a letter from a, a real lieutenant general to a chief of the imperial general staff, I think. And yeah. in it, and the way they wrote it, it was to make it not too obvious. But the, I mean, the specific thing said, we have recent information that the Germans have been reinforcing and strengthening their defenses in Greece. And we feel, and whatever, this chief of imperial general staff feels that our forces for the assault were in, insufficient. Therefore, hinting, right, that like, because the Germans' defenses are strong in Greece and the Balkans, and therefore we feel, someone feels at least, that our forces are in assault were insufficient, it was like a subtle way of saying that's where we will be attacking. And then they also did something uh, with sardines, right? Wasn't there something with... They Sardinia. Sort of, yeah, Sardinia. And, and they put like a joke about sardines into the letter, which kind of, again, yeah. would make it seem like we're going to be playing... What they it. also did that they could prove later on is they placed Anything. a single black eyelash, right? They, sing, yeah. they placed a single black eyelash in the letter, to check to see if the Germans or the Spanish would open it. That's one way because they knew that it would eventually be sent back to them if the Spanish found it, and um, they'd be able to find out if the um, if it was open stuff. Yeah. yeah, and and how clever is that? You know, I'm like no one's going to notice one so tiny detailed. little yeah. right. I mean, an eyelash because even if they do find it, it seems so innocent. So the idea was like, if someone opens this letter, this eyelash is going to fall out, and that's how we're going to know because obviously they're going to reseal it that this was indeed opened. So at this point, you know, all the documents are set, everything's ready, the final approval comes through, and now they're like, well, how do we do this, right? Do we, like, do, this is supposed to look like this guy parachuted out. Like, well, they thought it was going to be an airplane crash. It was going to be a air, victim yeah. of an airplane crash, right? That but they ultimately decided, decided instead of, yeah, but instead of dropping from an airplane, they actually decided to use a U-boat, and they got as close as they could to the coast of Spain. And they basically dropped this. Well, first of all, to even bring him in the U-boat, they had to create a special container to bring this body. Again, temperature is yeah. really important. And they put this on this U-boat uh, submarine, and then they bring it over close to the Spanish coast, and then they take it out. And it's then, this is also very secretive, because even the members of the submarine didn't really know, except the um, captain and one other person that stayed up top, you know, like, what's in the box? You know, it's kind of one of those uh, Brad Pitt moments. And then what happens is they open a the box, they dump the body, and then they go further out and then throw the box in the water and start shooting at it because they're trying to sink it. But actually, even though they like shoot through it, like Swiss cheese, it doesn't sink. So they actually have to like get near the box again. Okay. This flowing coffin. And they put an explosive on it to finally blow it up. Um, so it, it gets, gets destroyed. And then this is where the fun begins. So step one, what we want it to happen is happening. The body does actually wash up on the coast of Spain. 
right? Yeah, if you found- want to, you can find pictures of the actual, um, of his body. They have pictures of the body like right before they loaded in there. Gross, gross. They, they, they're out, they're out there now. Yeah, so I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, so the body of Major Martin is floating in the water, right? And yep. it's found 9.30 a.m., April 30th, 1943, by a local fisherman. God, what happens yep. then? Because then, now, now the ball's rolling. Now the ball's well, rolling. That, and that was the thing, right? Um, so the Spanish soldiers take it in, and they hand it to his naval judge. And then the naval judge informs the Spanish government. At that point, they also mentioned, we forgot to mention the briefcase, right? Because they, they put the stuff in the briefcase that they kind of tied to this body. They made sure um, it was chained up there tight, yeah, yeah. so it wouldn't float away. So what's interesting is this, the Spanish don't say anything at first. They just start sending a whole bunch of, like local Spanish officials are sending a whole bunch of wires uh, and messages to their superiors for a couple of days. And the British know this because they obviously intercept the codes. We also know that the Germans are getting the same messages. So now it's kind of like this waiting game. Like, are they going to hand it to us or are they going to first let the Germans see it? And near that particular area in Spain, um, our agents, we know for a fact, um, is one of the top uh, German agents from the Abwehr, right? Which is basically their like OS, you know, OSS, I guess. Yeah. So basically what happens here, I mean, that's exactly what we think happens, right? They wind up, I mean, unless you know any more specifics, but I know for a fact that they obviously leaked the news to the Germans. The way they leaked the news, they wind up taking and opening up all of these um, letters and documents. And the one thing I, I kind of had a difficult time understanding, I don't know if you got it, like how they removed the letter. They removed it through some like round process. I think they put the actual letter on a roller and like this roller kept on turning in like a certain heat. And what happened is it actually like set the roll because it was put into, you know, it's no longer flat, separated the actual flap of the um, letter, you know, the envelope. And that's how they're able to remove the letter itself, which they yeah. then wound up without, without ripping the wax seal. Without yeah. ripping the wax, and right? So they would do that, and they dried them and everything. And they were, and then what they did is they basically took photographs of the letters and then yep. put them all back in, and then sent and them the back Spaniards. to this is the Spaniards, the Spaniards or yeah. the Germans, yeah. right. for the Germans, yeah. So they, and they actually a lot of them were, and then they soaked them in salt water again so that they would like still seem like they were wet. They wanted yep. to, you know. They uh, prove that they prove that, and then on May 11th, the briefcase, complete with all the documents, was returned by the Spanish authorities and forwarded to London to buy a bag to the British. And the documents, they looked at it, and they're like, oh, the eyelash is missing. So they're like, oh, we know it was open. And first, texture of the fibers and the papers were damaged by being folded more than once. So they knew the papers were definitely there, but they sent out then um, again with that encryption that they knew the Germans were reading. They sent out. Um, Messages saying, "Oh, we f- thank we found this bag. The Spanish gave it back. From what we know is, uh, and they said that the uh, the contents of the bag are secure. No, they were not opened. So they're telling them, oh, look, we got it back. We thank we goodness, kind of no one opened bullet. them. No one opened it. They, you know, the Spanish said they didn't open it. They didn't open it. We can everything's everything's good. So now it's like, all right, now and this was big too for the people of Project Mincemeat. Because now they knew the Germans did see it. They they see inference there. Doesn't mean they're gonna go for it." But they know they, they that they saw it. That you know, and they know this is going to go up the chain, and at some point, Hitler is going to be made aware of this. And this is what exactly what happens, right? So things are kind of mm-hmm. going the way we wanted to happen because on May fourteenth, nineteen forty-three, the Admiral Donitz right meets with Hitler and basically discusses his recent visit to Italy, where Mussolini is basically saying they're going to attack Sicily, like it's the obvious yeah. choice. He comes back and tells Hitler this that Mussolini also believes it's going to be through Sicily and Italy, and the Fuhrer is like, "No, I can't agree with that. I have this information. I don't think the invasion yeah. point is really Sicily." He, he calls it the Anglo-Saxon order. And the attacks will be directly against Sard- uh, Sardinia. That yeah, they're going to attack Sicily, but that's going to be a diversionary yep. invasion. 
that the real invasion is going to be in Sardinia. I mean, he basically doubles the strength of the strength of German troops to ten thousand. He brings in fighter aircraft, uh, more support. Everything kind of gets moved from what initially might have been ready for the attack, you know, the Allied attack of Sicily. It gets moved to the Greek islands and to the Balkans and Sardinia because he's like, this is where it's happening. And even when the attack on the on Sicily begins, Operation Husky and all that begins, um, he's still in denial. You know, people are like, uh, you know, Führer, we got to send reinforcements. It's like, no, 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 this is just a diversion. This is just a diversion. And he like he kept the actual forces that you know just not just soldiers but we're talking aircraft that could have stepped in but it didn't you know it, it stayed waiting in the balkans because that's how convinced he was and you know the idea here is is it because hitler thought that this this body was the answer as to why this is happening or was it sheer fact that he had a lot more to lose by losing the Balkans, as you mentioned, because of the iron, the ore, and all these different natural resources, you know, it's almost like resources that were there. He couldn't, yeah, he couldn't give that up. He he needed that a little bit more so, uh, perhaps than Sicily. So we're not sure whether he was simply being so protective of the Balkans because of the potential of losing the Balkans, or because he was so protective because of the fact that he thought that that's where the attack was going to be. Yeah, I mean, he even sends uh, Rommel, who's one of his greatest um, generals. Right, to, perfect, yeah, to prepare to defense of the region. And by the yeah. time the Germans realized that this was a mistake, it was too late to make any base difference because the Allies um, invade right in July of 43. And, uh, well, Italy, first of all, it, it, Italians are like, crap, we're out, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, they vote Mussolini out. They're like, forget it. They, they vote Mussolini out. He's, he dismisses yeah. prime minister. They start negotiating with the with the Allies. Again, you can't say that it was entirely because of Mismi or wire deception of the Operation you know, Barclay in general. But yeah. It was definitely part of it, and you know, definitely also made like you know Hitler's unwillingness to risk German troops alongside Italian troops. You know that because he just wasn't something he was into. But yeah. um, they basically had an impact on the on the campaign in some way, and they definitely played on Hitler and the Nazis' fear of losing the Balkans, on some way. And they think that yeah. it could have because you know they predicted this was going to be a ninety day campaign. It was actually over in, in thirty eight. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's funny, too, because, because of this. Germany had like hundreds of thousands of troops there in Sicily and Italy, you know, the lower region of Italy and Sicily. And what wound up happening is they went down to 65,000 while they were holding off 400,000 American yeah. and British troops that landed there. Like the, the Germans had no no shot in this whatsoever. And they said it probably affected other battles, too, because this was in July 9th that Hitler was actually holding back a lot of the um, his armament in uh, by the Soviet Union. Because he was worried about what he was going to do with that. So he suspended the Kursk offensive on July 13th, the Soviet Union, and that, that kind of allowed the Soviet Union oh, that was to a like major, prepare. major point. That, that's, the, that's the largest tank battle in the history of the world, right? Yeah. So, and he did all that because um, he was worried about the Allies landing in Sicily, right, to invade the Balkans. And so he, he wanted to have his troops available for, the, for uh, the, the fast deployment to meet them. And that that kind of like waiting period gave times for the Soviets to, you know, prepare and then they never regained it well, after that. So they never stopped after that they never stopped after yes, that yeah yeah well, yeah so it, it was it was just like this had like ripple effects across like multiple fronts especially yeah. in the european campaign all because of this man who never was and he never actually existed he had some you know at least some level of some effect of what's what's going on here so it's an interesting story without a doubt yeah, without a doubt. And I'm kind of surprised that it's, again, we, they made a movie in the 50s, but I'm surprised it's, it's taken this long for, for a movie. Yeah, it's not talked um, about in like classes. Like, yeah, like I'm even, I'm not, I remember seeing a documentary on or maybe like mentioning of it in one of those like 
history channel shows like not history mysteries but like untold stories yeah. of history or unsold tor- stories of world war ii or something like that um i guess maybe because it can't really be proven you can't really prove how much effect it had but you can't prove that it didn't like this could have who knows like this is one of those what ifs you know that i don't know if you ever read harry turtle though he does all those like what if histories oh, all time, kind of all the time yeah maybe he does some sort of like what if you know this didn't happen or there's a world when that didn't happen and you know things can change so like it definitely probably had an effect but we never know how much of an impact it had but it's still an interesting story i feel yeah there's one failed operation i don't know if you looked into operation copperhead uh, it was a smaller military deception operation also ran by the british and this one was happening in uh very very shortly before the invasion of normandy in 1944 and again it didn't work it, it was basically also known as the operation of monty's double uh, mm-hmm. which was you had bernard oh. montgomery who was the the Eisenhower, I guess, of the British Army. The German high command expected Montgomery, right, one of the most known Allied commanders, to play a key role in the cross-channel invasion of Normandy. So they actually had this guy that looked like like Monty hang out with him for like months, basically, and then just learn his mannerisms, blah blah blah. He looked like him, and then they send him out right before June to um, spend some time in um, Gibraltar, Algiers. Africa, they try to put him like even near like Sicily to make it seem like, all right, well, look, Germans, like here's Monty. Clearly, we're not invading in a couple of weeks, um, you know, in in the north in France because Monty's not even there. But meanwhile, it wasn't Monty. It was some other guy. And this one failed. Um, they, history shows that there was no significant impact on German plans whatsoever, even though it was re- recorded high chain of command. They're like, all right, so what? Like, they, it's almost like the Germans no longer really cared as much about um, Monty, as they did about the American forces coming through, which is you know kind of crazy, considering the British held off for as long as they did before we got there. But cool stuff, nonetheless. So I guess we'll watch this movie, Tom, and maybe we'll uh, yeah, one of these podcasts coming yeah. up. We'll we'll talk about what we thought about this movie. Oh, yeah, we, we have didn't to do mention our history of Highland, right? Uh, we didn't mention the fact that the grave, uh, as you mentioned in the '90s, the actual grave of this body finally got the right uh, name put on it. Because both had to run, right? Yep. They kind of put a whole marker in his honor and they, they changed the name on the more cool stuff. Anyway, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once more to our podcast. It is always fun to record these. Um, hopefully, you guys enjoy listening to them. So, if you need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. We are here if you have any questions, comments, or reactions. Um, and I guess that's it, guys. We'll see you next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.